Hello and welcome to Coasting Country, the official podcast powered by the science of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. I'm your host, Brian Scott-Smith. We've all read news reports over the years about bed bugs infesting hotel rooms around the world, as well as our homes, and just the mere thought of them probably makes you shudder. But there are many myths and misinformation about bed bugs, and in this podcast, I talk with the station's Dr. Gail Ridge, associate scientist and entomologist, and Catherine Dugas, a researcher in the Department of Entomology, all about them. Ladies, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. We're talking bed bugs today with the bug lady, Dr. Gale. So tell us, bed bugs, why are we so scared of them? Really, nobody has a true answer for that one. It is certainly a psychological problem. We have a hang-up. And I think one of the reasons is that um, they approach us when we're at our most vulnerable time, which is when we're resting, we're quiet, or we are asleep. Um, These are extremely timid, delicate little insects who have been on this planet for exceeding 115 to 122 million years. They predate the dinosaurs. So they've been around a lot longer than us. We should be loving them then rather than trying to get rid of them. (laughs) Yes, because they don't actually harm us. They are medically harmless. They don't convey and uh, give little presents like ticks do and um, mosquitoes. At last, an insect that actually doesn't pass any nasties on to us. They actually keep us healthy. That's good to hear. (laughs) Catherine, you're a researcher. You work with Gail. Why did you want to get into this line of work? A lot of it is just you research what people want to know about. Obviously, we work in a, a public information office. Most of my job is taking phone calls or mail or you know, usually visitors. We do drop-offs right now, but uh, and someone wants to know, what, what is this, you know, and, and should I be worried about it, or what do I do about it? And, well, bed bugs, of course, I think, what, 20% of our current inquiries generally involve bed bugs in some capacity, whether is is this a bed bug or I have them, what do I do? So a lot of it is just you help people with their questions, and bed bugs are a source of lots of questions. We've got a lot to talk about in this particular podcast. I guess really, and and Gail gave us a little bit of history at the very top of this, Mm. let's talk about myths and legends of bedbugs because I think we've all got the wrong idea about them. So let's break down some myths, Doctor. What would you say is one of the top myths that people, you know, misunderstand about bedbugs? Because of the search engines and algorithms that are on the net, often there are hot button words that these search engines will go for and one of them is breakfast lunch and dinner which is an urban myth and people often call us up and say well our doctor said you've got some straight line feeding you've got bed bugs because there's this idea that bed bugs feed in a straight line they don't they're capillary feeders and very delicate fussy feeders And so we don't have a straight capillary in our body, but it has stuck. It's such as the idea of bed bugs saying, night, night, sleep tight, don't let bed bugs bite. They actually are incapable of biting. They have a little stylet, which is a tiny, tiny capillary-like device that they insert into the skin with a little bit of anesthetic to draw blood. 
they have no ability to bite you. Let's break down some other bed bug myths here. The name. You don't just find them in beds. No. In fact, the insect has been so intimate with mankind, every language in the planet has a unique word dedicated to this insect. That's how intimate it is. The German Wandlaus, in my opinion, is probably one of the most accurate descriptors of names for this insect. It means wall louse. And basically, a bed bug is a structural pest. It lives in structures, in cracks and crevices. It's much like a hermit crab. They're very delicate, and they need to be sequestered inside a structure to survive. So they go into a crack. And so the German description of a wall louse is absolutely on the button, as it were, for <laughs> identifying this insect. Bedbug is the anglicized form, and that is uh, because they associate with people sleeping. And so we've associated that name to them. Now, another thing, another myth as well, is we think if we keep our house clean or our, <laughs> or our structures clean, as it were, that we won't get bed bugs. But that's wrong as well, isn't it? Absolutely. Bed bugs are indiscriminate feeders. They can feed on the multimillionaires, squeaky clean marble dining room floors to the rest of us who have just regular houses and ranches and just comfortable homes to the gentleman or lady who's living under a bridge in a cardboard box. You know, we're just a source of food. It's indiscriminate. So the concept that you are a dirty person because you have bed bugs is, again, a very strong myth. And countless people call in and say, I keep a clean house. They're immediately defensive on this particular point. And it, that's how deeply sown into the fabric of our psyche these myths have uh, settled. So we've broken some myths there. Any legends at all for bed bugs? Bug is oh, yeah. the opportune word. It's Old English. It's an Old English word for ghost or sprite. So the legend side of it is that this is a little ghost that visits you at night. It's almost romantic. I'm almost yes, like, there is a romanticism <laughs> to it. Yes. I'm, I'm almost wanting bed bugs now. And now, as I'm talking <laughs> to you, it's like I feel like I want them. For me, I've been in this unique position of being able to do what might be described as basic research, which is studying this little insect, which is an animal, for its behavior and its traits, because we have spent thousands of years trying to get rid of these things. 200,000 years ago, we have discovered beds that were torched. And so this is, uh, if you go to the Long Cave down in South Africa, recent research has found that uh, the people made beds. And what they would do would set fire to the beds and create a bed of ash. Well, ash is a desiccant for little ectoparasites such as bed bugs. So it's, it's a protection. So they create these protective beds against critters like bed bugs. And these are in this, these caves. So this insect, having survived millions and millions of years against active assault by the hosts, <laughs> have, in my research, evolved at least nearly 50 different traits and activities and behaviors to survive. They are remarkable insects. They stand up against the most intelligent, dangerous creature, which is us, on the planet, and we still are licked by them. 
And one of their, their traits for survival is they did a reverse evolutionary trick. Creatures in early development, in the early evolution, would be generalists in their food. So you'd have, for instance, a fly who would then feed on numerous different species. And then as evolution progressed, that particular insect would then become more of a specific host. So if you just think of the panda bear, you know, it was a generalist feeder, but now all it feeds on is bamboo. It bottlenecks its feeding. Bed bugs did the opposite. They were specialists on a, for instance, bats. And then they became generalists, and we became part of their portfolio of hosts. And that's a trait that allows them, when they're in trouble, if we're not around, they can make do by feeding on other hosts. And that's one characteristic that they have. Another characteristic is a form of altruism, where very young bed bugs are not strong enough to go off and feed. They can't go grocery shopping like the adults and older nymphs. Okay, so they can stay back in the cluster, which is called a refuge, and then will jump onto a fed adult or an older nymph and get a blood meal by feeding on those older members in the colony. Youngsters also can hitchhike and actually ride on the uh, underside of a bed bug, adult or older nymph, and actually co-feed upside down <laughs> with the other insect <laughs> and then ride back. So they have a taxi service to the grocery shop. It sounds like you're almost in awe of these. I am absolutely in awe of them. They are remarkable insects in their ingenuity for survival. Catherine, you work with Dr. Ridge here. Tell us a little bit about you know, some of the things that, that you've been discovering and that has opened your eyes as well. Because like we said, it is, to the outside world, an unusual piece of research. Well, <laughs> that's putting it lightly. <laughs> so bed bugs, we've had all this history with bed bugs, as Gail has just really elucidated on them. But up until pretty recently, you know, several decades, uh, bed bugs kind of fell. We've, we kind of lost our perception of them. You know, we had well, the vacuum cleaner and, and pesticide applications of, of you know, more modern first world countries kind of made bed bugs in. They didn't go away. People think they did. Uh, you know, they went extinct and they come back. No, they just kind of fell back a little bit. But starting in about mid 2000s, they kind of, they came back in the sense of to the mind of the public. And I was just starting out at the station right after this kind of bed bug renaissance, if you want to call it that. And I remember my first experiences with bed bugs was I was learning about them just as we were having to reteach, especially pest controllers. You know, we had uh, pest controllers that were family businesses. So in some cases, they had inherited this from a parent who had inherited it from a parent. And the grandfather, the great-grandfather, would have been familiar with bed bugs and the treatment. But the contemporary had no clue. It was kind of blindsiding them. You know, looking back in the records, you know, we said 20% of, of our current inquiries are bed bug or bed bug related. If you look back, and we've got records because this office has been active since 1904, 
I believe was the yeah, first official year that this this uh, entomology department and this public inquiry uh, started. And you look at the records, and they're not gone. You know, you see one or two a year, and then right around two thousand five, two thousand and six, all of a sudden it starts creeping up. And here we are, twenty twenty, with uh, a fifth of our inquiries being bed bug related. Based on that, both of you, I mean, often we can see, and and you've pointed out a particular time period where suddenly there seems to be an increase in bed bugs. Do we understand why or what was happening then that caused that to then elevate? Yes. Basically, the bed bug was wiped out by the advent of DDT and the use of household appliances such as the washer and dryer and also tightening up of architectural design, making uh, buildings simpler. There was less, less cracks and crevices. If you just think of the architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, you've got these beautiful, simple designs. That combination conspired to basically the extirpation of bed bugs in the late 1940s and early 50s. And so in my research, as a 50-year gap... So when I'm, when I'm referencing papers, I have to go back. I have to jump 50 years to get, you know, material or information. You know, things have changed now in the last 20 years. What really kicked off bedbug um, resurgence here in the United States is, is really uh, the advent of the World Wide Web, which was set in place on the August the 6th, 1991. That was the first time the World Wide Web started to exchange information. And then we had the NAFTA, which broke down international trade barriers and opened up the opportunity for corporations to trade freely internationally without much regulation and control. And then in 1999, the Glass-Siegel Act was basically dropped and, and gutted, which was set in place after the Great Depression to separate Main Street banks and investment banks. And so they could then come together. So we had free international communication. We had no real controls over trade levels and money that you could just get anywhere. So the corporations moved a lot of industry overseas, as we know, to the Orient and, and to Eastern Europe and created these moving pipelines, these high-speed ships that would ship goods and aircraft rapidly from one region of the planet to the other. So it created a pipeline in which bedbugs that were very much present in the Far East, the sub-Asian continent, India, to be moved out. And these insects can hang out and starve for months and then just start up again and have a meal, and they're off. So basically, international corporations flooded the United States with bedbug populations. And if you follow cluster maps of bedbug introduction in the early part of 2000, uh, you will see they're all at ports of entry, New York, Chicago, California. So I'm guessing even now as we continue to expand the global economy, as it were, when I go online and order something from possibly China or, you know, somewhere else in the world, 
there's every possibility that bed bugs could be brought into the country, maybe on the packaging, or because again, it's a case of it's coming from another country, and yes. we don't know what controls are there. And as you say, the speed of everything—the speed of everything—buys into the biology of the insect. Our behaviour helps the insect. The other aspect is um, hybrid vigour. I'll explain this. Hybrid vigour is when you have a mix of populations creating a more fertile situation. So if you breed males and females in population A together, you may have, for instance, 400 eggs produced by a set of females. And population B, say 600. Now you mix. You put males of B with females of A and vice versa. You can, with bedbugs double the number of eggs by mixing the genetic pool. And bed bugs are highly responsive to that. What about climate change as well? Because we, we talk about climate change for so many things and, and we say well, that you know, climate change causes this and, and climate change is responsible for that. But if I'm understanding both of you correctly, you know, they're so adaptable. Is climate change really an issue for bed bugs? Uh, they love the warmer conditions. In fact, before we had central um, heating which started around 1916, 1917, bedbugs had problems because they are what are called ectothermic. This is what insects have as as a mechanism survival. They use the ambient air to keep themselves warm. They don't have a liver. They don't have an internal heating system. And so in historic past, people would shut down a number of rooms within a building and just go to the parlor and stay by the fire and just keep things warm. So the entire building dropped in temperature. And so if you get to temperatures below 45, 40 degrees Fahrenheit, bed bugs basically shut down. So our behavior for spring cleaning was, in fact, to get ahead of bed bug reproduction. So in the spring... Everybody would empty the house, clean everything out, and that in that by doing that, they're shaking out the bed bugs, clearing the building of bed bugs. There may be a few left behind, but they will not be as so troublesome. And so our spring cleaning behavior is actually resulting on our effort to get ahead of bed bug reproduction. And so it takes six weeks for a bed bug to, to do, develop an, from an egg to an adult. So if you do your spring cleaning in April, you may have the population doubled or tripled by late August and September, which is still manageable. But with central heating and now global warming, these temperatures are remaining at a much more ambient, higher level, and it's perfect for bedbugs. What's perfect for us is perfect for bedbugs. So this is why we, you know, bedbugs are back big time then? Oh, certainly, yes. Because we're at a point now, as I understand it, where bedbugs are an issue. And, of course, you know, with our own homes, even though you said earlier that the homes are of a more simplistic design, the fact that we have draft-free homes, we have, you know, um, climate control in our, in our homes mm. because we want to keep ourselves comfortable at a certain mm-hmm. temperature, we're actually like the authors of our own misfortune, really. Absolutely. We've created a stick to beat ourselves with. <laughs> <laughs> this is our personal parasite in many ways. It, it, it's humbling. And it's in a way interesting that this particular insect does do this. It gives us a little bit of humble pie. We talked at the top of this podcast, you know, about sort of the stigma, as it were. But let's delve into that a little bit more. There is social stigma and, and anxiety towards bedbugs. 
But as we've been exploring and understanding, they're helpful. They don't appear to be harmful. They don't damage property, I take it. So why have we got such a big issue about these? Why are we fighting these poor little mites? I think we're fighting each other. We set each other against ourselves. Mm. When anybody reports a bed bug, immediately the messenger is attacked. Rather than culturally what we should be saying is, thank you very much, Uh, where did you find them, let us go after them. It creates a divisiveness. And it's, it's almost like we go into this spiral of grief, which, you know, there's five, five stages of acceptance and grief, which is denial. Oh, I don't get, have bed bugs. I have a clean house, you know. And then anger. How dare you bring ha- uh, bed bugs into my apartment building? You're the one who's going to have to pay for it. And then bargaining. Then you get to depression, which is huge, and then finally acceptance. And once you get people past all those stages, then you can actually get something done. But while people are in those states of mind, it gives bedbug full advantage of continuing to survive. And they're basically ignoring us. All they want to do is just have a quick blood meal and go back to what they do best. Catherine, again... (laughs) with your research and the work that you do. What do people say to you when you're talking, you know, about bed bugs and, and everything that we've been talking about? I mean, what's their reaction to it? Well, the, the biggest one I always, you know, whether it's a phone conversation or conversation in person, one of the first things to say is I threw out all my furniture. That seems to be a, a very common knee-jerk reaction. I found bed bugs in my bed. I threw the whole thing. And, and I mean, that gives me an interesting visual <laughs> in my head. But that's the first thing people do is assume that something has been forever contaminated or tarnished or is no longer usable. And so the first thing that they'll throw out, furniture, clothing, possessions, and that's their first reaction. Their mattresses, I'm assuming. Mattresses, well. very, very commonly thrown out. Um, and, and there's an issue there where... Okay, you have a bedbug infested mattress, you throw it out on the side of the road, but then five minutes later that mattress is gone. You know, so then you're going, Where did that go? You know, who took it? Who's who's inherited those bedbugs? But that's another urban myth, if you want to call it that, is that uh, if you get bedbugs, you have to throw things out. That is very much not the case. Uh, again, these are structural pests, but you know, if you get termites in your house, you don't knock down the house. You get rid of the termites and you and you remediate what what damage was done. Well, bed bugs fortunately don't cause a lot of structural damage. They can if you have a, a long term area that's been harbor for bed bugs. Obviously, they they will have soiled it in the sense that there may be fecal materials, uh, old exuvia, uh, dead insects, that sort of thing. But most of the time, unless you're dealing with some very heavy heavily soiled textiles. This is something that can be cleaned up, and and it's fine. It's not dirty. It's not forever tainted. It's uh, it's ter- totally usable. So uh, that's one of the big issues we run into is people have kind of sabotaged themselves and say, oh, bed bugs cost thousands of dollars in damages, and a lot of it is self-inflicted. Uh, and the bed bugs didn't throw the mattress out onto the street. It was people reacting to them. So we are our own worst enemy. So how do we manage them at the end of the day? I mean, clearly people, as we've said, get upset if they know that they've got them. And and even though they don't seem to do any real harm, clearly they do need to be managed. So, Gail, how do we manage 
bed bugs? Managing the bed bugs is a very simple pesticide. We have this pesticide in our homes, and 90% of us have it. It's the vacuum cleaner. Bed bugs cannot adapt against physics, which is to be sucked down the tube into a dusty little bag. And seriously, all you need to do is understand the insect, and that's what my research has done. You understand your target. It's like hunters studying deer for hunting. They, they know exactly what deers do out there in the, in the forests to be able to be efficient in their hunting. It's the same with bedbugs. If you understand the behavior, then you can intercept the behavior. These live in cracks and crevices. They are a principal prey for other arthropods in buildings, such as spiders, cockroaches. Of course, we wiped out cockroaches <laughs> at the turn of the uh, century using modern baits. That is a principal predator of bedbugs, and one of the reasons why they go into cracks and crevices, because they are protected on three sides. House centipedes, ants, even mice. So they are actually a rabbit food source in buildings. They are actually needed by other living organisms in buildings. So they are driven into these cracks and crevices. And so with a vacuum cleaner, if you get a crevice tool on the end of the hose of a vacuum cleaner, which increases suction, if you go slowly down a crack, you can pick up 80% of the individuals. You're picking up the shed skins, and because these insects have something called thigmotaxis, where they are driven into a tight space, there's often nymphs, young bedbugs, inside those shed skins of older insects, um, which is a bubble of protection. So if you go down there with a pesticide and spray, it's, they're well protected. The vacuum, uh, vacuuming undermines that. That sucks up the adults, many of the eggs, which are very lightly laid in place. They're not glued hard. The nymphs, uh, all kinds of debris and dust, and you have them on the run. So don't race out to buy pesticides, over-the-counter pesticides, because most of them often do not work because of high levels of resistance. If they do, it's often because insects have been drowned. Bed bugs actually drown very easily. They actually drown in high humidity. They can't tolerate moisture. They're desert insects. They love a desert environment. And a building is a desert. So vacuuming is by far the most important thing. Focus on that, not the clothing. We've misdirected our energies by saying, well, A, they are a disease. They're dirty. So we clean everything with bleach and pesticides and, and chemistry. That is not necessary. They are not a disease. We don't, you know, the language is we catch bed bugs. Well, that's like catching a cold. It, you know, you don't catch a mosquito. You don't catch a tick. This terminology is, is, you know, is a package that makes it very confusing and disorientating. This is simply an insect that feeds on people. So don't go after your clothes. Yes, they, will, they can accidentally hook onto your clothes and be, or articles and be moved from one building to another. But that's the last place they want to be. They want to be in the building. They want to be in the cracks and crevices of, of residence or business that you're, you're frequenting. So the vacuuming will clean up the insects. It also will clean up dust and debris in those cracks and crevices. If you do that every 10 days while there's continuing to be a problem, any eggs which have been hidden by females... 
They'll have an egg-laying clutch, but they will hide a few eggs away from that clutch as an insurance policy against attack. So young nymphs that hatch from hidden eggs will actually migrate back to their refuge. They communicate using an alphabet soup of chemistries, and one of them is to defecate in a particular spot, and that becomes a chemical torch or beacon in the dark. So when an insect goes off to feed, they can find their way home. New nymphs that have just hatched from the eggs will also go to that refuge. So don't spray with pesticides and chemicals because you're adding another set of odors and chemistries over the top, creating possibly a smoke screen. So it will make the insects harder to... Well, it will make it harder for the insects to find that location. So it's important to, you know, leave those refuges alone because they can be bait and can draw insects from the area to those refuges. Come back with your vacuum cleaner, you get more. You come back. And people can control bed bugs just by using the vacuum cleaner. It is amazing conversation that we've had with both of you. And to think that we are in the 21st century and we are still having this conversation. And <laughs> so many things which we just do not know. And as I say, the myths and the legends and the misinformation about this uh, what sounds to be quite a friendly little bug at the end of the day. But if anybody does want to find out any more information from the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station about bed bugs, where can they go? Just type in Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, and on the left panel, you will see bed bugs about third or fourth down. And just click on there, and you've got plenty of information. It's that simple. Excellent stuff. Well, Dr. Gail Rich and Catherine Dugas from the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Thank you ever so much for talking to us about bedbugs. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And the station's website again can be found at ct.gov forward slash C-A-E-S. That's all from this edition of Coast and Country. Thank you for listening. And we'll be dishing up another serving of science very soon. <laughs>